stand-up comedy may not be your forte, but uh, it's not. You it's were not. you were good. <laughs> you were really good on the Martin Luther. That's a great quote. I hadn't heard that. We are happy to have you here, and we're happy to have those of you that are watching online. And congratulations if you've never done this before, either listened or watched online, and you thought you couldn't do it. Thanks for doing it. We're glad that you're here. Uh, let me just say two, three things to piggyback on what uh, what George had to say there. Let me turn this off. I can. Not sure where the off switch is. I'll just there you go. Don't want to start roaring at you. Uh, let me just add a two, three PSs on to that. You know, my encouragement to you uh, would be: don't be afraid. But be honest. Uh, one of the worst things that we can do when we're going through something like this is to stuff how we're feeling down because we feel like it's not appropriate for us to feel one way or another. So uh, if you look in Scripture, one of the most common phrases that comes up again and again, and every time Jesus would look into his disciples' eyes, he would have to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's kind of a natural response that we've got. So don't be afraid, but it's okay to, to be honest. Be wise. You know, when Jesus was sending his disciples out, he, he told them, when they were going out on their own, he said, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Don't be stupid. <laughs> be loving through whatever you do. And I think George has said that, said that really well. And the last thing that I would say is this is a wonderful opportunity to serve. There's all kinds of stuff popping up. There are ways the church can be the church. And I think that's what George was saying about Luther's quote. There are ways in which we can have an opportunity. And God uses uh, tough circumstances, sometimes tragic circumstances, trying circumstances to, uh, to get us out of our comfort zone and say, well, here's something you can do. The worst thing we can do is just bunker down with our souls. Uh, there, are, there are opportunities for us to give and to serve and to share, and we'll try to make you aware of those as we work our way through the, through the days that are ahead. So don't be afraid. It's okay to be honest, be wise, and be loving as we try to be the church and reach out to others. Okay. I tried to decide what to do today, and I almost, but it, although it really messed up Rachel, uh, almost just said, okay, I, I want to talk about something else, the elephant in the room. But we invested our time in this series, and I think you'll find some applications as we work our way through here. So I'm going to stick with what we had in our Blue Jeans theology, but I'll, I'll make a couple applications as we work our way through. Back when you were in school, and some of you are still in school, were you popular? Uh, were you one of the cool kids? Were you a part of the in crowd, or did you spend a lot of your time on the outside looking in? Well, back in 2003, there was an award-winning musical that uh, hit Broadway, and it's risen to be about the second largest revenue producer of any show that's out there. And it's about, in, in part, the unlikely friendship between two principal characters, one called Elphaba and the other one Galinda. Now, they struggle with each other because they have these very opposing personalities. Glenda is this self-absorbed, beautiful person, but pretty much it's just all about her in life. And then her developing friendship with the girl called Alphaba is anything but popular, at least as far as her life. She's marked. She's actually green-skinned. She has something about her that just makes everybody look at her and say, well, you're you're certainly odd. And Galinda, the, the blonde and popular one, decides that she's going to make Elphaba her, her project. She's going to do a makeover. She's going to make Elphaba popular. 
And there are some lines from a, from a song that they sing very early in the Broadway musical that I think would be a good way for us to reflect on what it's like to be popular. Whenever I see someone less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who isn't less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. And when someone needs a makeover, I simply have to take over. I know, I know exactly what they need and even in your case though it's the toughest case i've yet to face don't worry i'm determined to succeed follow my lead and yes indeed you will You're gonna be popular. I'll teach you the proper voice when you talk to boys. Little ways to flirt and grounds. I'll show you what shoes to wear, how to fix your hair. Everything that really counts to be popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with our right cohorts. You'll be good at sports. Know the slang you've got to know. So let's start, cause you've got an awfully long way to go. Okay, try to get that out of your head now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take a song to be able to help me to understand that it makes a difference how I'm viewed. Doesn't it you? I mean, we all, we're, all, we're all concerned about what people think about us, especially in our formative years as we're growing up, those tender years. You ask questions like, are you pretty? Are you smart? Are you popular? Do the clothes that you wear impress other people or embarrass you? Do you live in a house that's located in the, the right neighborhood? Or do you live on the other side of the tracks? Can you letter in sports? Do you ever get a lead role in a play? Are you ever picked first or are you always picked last? Now, for some of us, when we look back, it brings back memories of times when we really felt uncomfortable about ourselves. And the problem is, I'm sorry to tell you, if you feel bad about it now, it doesn't get any better as you grow up because you still have those same kind of challenges in your life. We still get judged as we get older by, older by where we live, 
what kind of job we have or we don't have, whether we're rich or poor, what kind of car we drive, whether we have a PhD or we can't get through with our GED, whether we're black or white or fat or thin or whether we're athletic or clumsy or young or old or whether I'm blue collar or professional, whether I'm Republican, Democrat, or I don't even care, or a man or woman, all those kinds of definitions that we have in our life that mark us. And then there's that big challenge of are we beautiful or are we ugly? Several years ago, back in the late 70s, there was a guy named Dan McCoy, who established this group called Uglies Unlimited. He was fed up with the fact that he thought a lot of people were hiring people and discriminating over how they, how they look, whether they were attractive or not, this selective bias. You ever seen an ugly person on the cover of a, of a magazine or reading some news lines on TV? Well, McCoy said the truth is not everybody can be attractive. The unattractive can't help it, he said. And so he welcomed in his organization secretaries who had warts, stewardesses with pimples, and salesmen without teeth, policemen with freckles, and barbers with no hair, short people, very tall people, fat people, skinny people. And his list went on and on and on. And not just content with welcoming them, then he, he picketed businesses that he thought were discriminatory in what people did. And he had some measure of success. I looked for a website for this place, and I can't tell whether it still exists or not, or maybe he made a website, and somebody looked at it and said, well, that's ugly, and he took it down. I don't know. You know it. But we, we understand what it's like in life to want to be popular. We all want to be cool. We all want to be accepted. And in the New Testament letter, James, that we come to the section today in chapter 2, he says this issue of how we see each other can be a real significant problem in the life of the church. Chapter 2 in our Blue Jeans Theology, he starts out in verse 2, we'll start there, and he says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, you may not know, but ring bearing was a big status symbol back then. If you had a whole lot of rings, that sort of let people know how well-to-do you were. In fact, they would put multiple rings on their hands, so they were just kind of like ringed all over. You couldn't be outdone. You couldn't be outringed, at least if you had stuff. Now, aren't you glad we don't have problems like that today? Aren't you glad that we don't have issues related to that? Aren't you glad that we don't have, like, knockoff Rolex watches that you can get on a street corner in, in New York or a, a Louis Vuitton handbag that really doesn't have anything to do with whoever made that. You know, uh, we, don't, we don't do that, right? Well, look around. I mean, I, I'm probably not here, especially it's not true here, but we all want to somehow be with it, don't we? Well, back to the church. Back to the church and what's happening there and to this visitor. This well-ringed, elegantly dressed fellow is met by the usher or whoever, at the church door, and he is quickly escorted to the very front of the room, shown special attention, and is told, here's a good seat, which is basically, this is a special seat. Now, I don't know if you had to tell somebody to get out of the seat or whatever, but this is your place, and every eye notices this well-ringed, well-dressed guy who comes in and sits down right in the middle of their assembly. 
Just a moment later, another man comes through the church door. He is a poor man. He is dressed in the shabbiest of clothes. Now, the word that they use here to describe poor is not just that he had a little bit, but he was, he was more along the line of being the beggar-like. He had, to, he had to beg people to give him food to get through the next day. Threadbare, ringless, though he may have had a cheap piece of metal in his ear, which slaves sometimes had to have, just to remind people of their status or their lack of status in life. He probably was shoeless. You could probably smell him before you could see him, an unwashed body. And the sight of his clothes and the look of this guy that comes in, and the same usher who had just seated this very rich guy looks at this very shabby guy and mutters to the man, Oh, you stand way back in the back if you want, or you can sit here on the floor by my feet. It's bad enough that he's unwashed and unclean, but where he's offered a seat is next to somebody's sticky feet on the bare floor. The underlying message that I think James is trying to convey to us through the story is that somebody is telling each of these guys, you matter, you don't matter. You're important to me, you are not important to me. You're cool, you're not. Now James sets up this hypothetical story uh, in a way that I didn't tell you. As we go back to verse 1, that prefaced the little story vignette here, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Okay, those are the three words that you need to remember out of everything that I have to say today. Say them with you. Don't show favoritism. One more time, so you got it embedded in your head. Don't show favoritism. Now, it's bookended. That's how he led it, and then he tells the story. And then after this story of this deferential seating, he says in verse 4, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Those are pretty harsh words. Favoritism, discrimination, you find them in other places in the New Testament, sometimes not just talking about poverty. In Romans 2, it's the, it's the way that sometimes the church and believers discriminated against Jews and, and Gentiles. There are all kinds of challenges. And a lot of times it's just that I'm cool and you're not. I'm, I'm by all the society standards in a upper level position in life and you're just kind of down at the bottom of the rung. And James says there are certain differences that the world says are significant that the church should not claim. We don't have a seating chart, although, you know, if you want to spread out a little bit, that's, that's, okay. that's okay this morning. But there aren't any second class or third class saints and honestly, There are not any third-class sinners as far as God is concerned. We'll see that a little bit more. Now, let me me ask a question at the risk of being a little uncomfortable for us here, and that is, is there anything about what this first-century church was hearing from James that we as a 21st-century church need to understand ourselves? When we face similar situations where we have an opportunity to be able to 
think about discriminating or to be favorite in how we choose to, to practice favoritism, how do we act? If someone comes into this service who's not on our cool list, how, how would we respond to them? Would you, would you say, hey, come sit with me? Now, I realize this would be a weird day to do that, so, you know, we're, we're, we're a little more cautious, but, you know, would you say, hey, come sit with me? Or, here, have my seat. I'll go sit where somewhere, else, somewhere else where you can have a more privileged place. We're not just talking about rich and poor. We're talking about people in life who are marked as different. Now, in this case, he talks an awful lot about poverty and about affluence or about those distinguishing characters. At least that's part of his passage in through here. But basically, the bottom line is he's saying don't show favoritism. Why? I'm going to give you three warnings about favoritism that I think James is trying to help us understand. And the first one is this. If we, if we play favorites... We are ignoring God's example. If we, if we act like that, we ignore the pattern of behavior that God has given for us. In verse 5, James says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? Throughout history, God has always been noticing the unnoticeable. He always pays attention to the ones that the rest of the world ignores. What is it about God that he has all of these kind of strange, unpredictable ways that he chooses people? In fact, you could say that God plays favorites, but he plays favorites with the unfavorite people. It's almost like he's turned the world upside down. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, there's this passage that almost seems to imply that God does play favorites. This is God, he's talking to Israel. He says, God has set his affection on their forefathers and loved them, and he chose them, their descendants, above all the nations. But then he goes on real quickly after that to say that he does not show impartiality. This great in God, a mighty God, awesome God, shows no impartiality and that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. And the children of Israel are to love those who are aliens too, for they once were aliens in Egypt. Insiders, outsiders, citizens, aliens, whatever it may be. God has a preference for people. He loves insiders. He loved Israel. But he loved the rest of the world. Not in some kind of begrudging way, but eagerly. I think these words are a way of reminding Israel, don't ever come to think that you were so cool that you were the only people in this world that I could love. God consistently reminded him then that the world was, was bigger and that his love was really limitless and that every soul in life was popular to him. The church, the Christian faith, is meant to turn this concept, this understanding, this worldly sense of what popularity is up on its head. I love the way Jesus did that again and again. He would say things when he was teaching, well, you've heard this said, but I'm going to tell you this. I like the way uh, it's translated here in, in one particular way where it looks at what Jesus had to say. He was, he was talking about how people need to give everything up, even family, field, home, whatever, and he says, you're going to gain all of everything plus eternity too. And he finishes up with these words. He says, this is the great reversal. 
This is the topsy-turvy way that God uh, shares with us how different he sees life. This great reversal, many of the first ending up last, and the last first. And in another place, Jesus said, this is Luke chapter 13, he says, you'll watch outsiders stream in from the east, west, north, south, and sit down at the table of God's kingdom. This is future looking. And all the time you'll be outside, you who think you're insiders or outsiders, looking in and wondering what happened. This is the great reversal. The last in line, put it the head of line, the so-called first ending to the last. What is it with God's choices? Why does he pick the least likely to be in the closest relationship with him. That was something that he constantly did, which to the consternation of those who thought they were insiders drove them crazy. And for those that were the outcast, the unpopular drew hordes of people to him in this unimaginable way. They were amazed. When Jesus opened his public ministry, he did it in a synagogue in Nazareth. And he stood up and not by accident, opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery to the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says that he got through and he rolled up the scroll, but if you know anything about Life back then, they, people didn't have their own Bibles and their scrolls, and so what they did is they memorized lots of stuff, and so sometimes they would get up and somebody would just say a part of a verse, and they would remember, oh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's surrounding that, and they probably, even though he didn't read the rest of it, would have known that it went on to say in Isaiah 61, verse 3, that he did all this to bestow on them, these least of thems, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Well, if you've ever felt unimportant and unnoticed and unpopular, Isaiah says that God's passion for you is to, to trade your ashes for beauty, your despair for hope, your cold for warmth. Mother Teresa one time said, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. It's not just that you don't have anything. It's that nobody cares about you. It's that nobody, nobody feels like they, they love you. A posting on Cincinnati Gospel, or City Gospel Mission says, poverty is not just a condition of not having enough money. It's not about being, well, it is about not having any money, but it's about being marked as insignificant, unimportant, just sidelined. Poverty is not just an issue of wealth. It is even more an issue of worth. And Jesus knew how much those people in life that had been marked as being unimportant needed to be loved. One day, Jesus uh, stopped at the table of a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were not the well-loved people back then, and particularly if you were a tax collector who happened to be Jewish that was taking up money for a Roman empire that was dominating the place and that, that probably was pocketing a little bit of excess money in his own bank account. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, Hey, tax collector, 
his name was Matthew, he said, why don't you come follow me? And Matthew looks around to see if he's talking to somebody else, and no, he's talking to him, and so he follows him, and he invites all of his friends to come to this dinner that he has with Jesus, and his friends, who are anything but poor, they are financially well-stated, but they were, they were poverty-stricken in their lives. You don't have to be an outcast, you don't have to be poor to feel like nobody cares about you. There were stories after stories like that. Broken, unpopular people. There was a woman at a well in the area of Samaria. She'd been married five times, and the one that she was living with, she was not married to. Her reputation was known in all the community. She was anything but popular, unless it was popular in all the wrong ways. It was unwise for Jesus to even talk to her to bother even in the middle of the day doing that, but he touched the depth of her heart. He, he told her things about herself that it was amazing that he could know. When she was, she was so overwhelmed by that, she goes back to the village and she brings everybody that she knows and they know who she is and they say, I want to introduce you to somebody who told me everything there was to know about me. But you know, I think what she was saying was this person sees me for what I am, anything but good. But he seems to love me. So I want you to hear and feel that same kind of love that he had for you. It it doesn't change our station in life. I mean, Jesus one time said, the poor will always be with you. There will be poor people and there will be rich people. And we can talk about all ways to make that more equitable But what Jesus is trying to say is there are people who have worth and people who don't have worth. For Jesus, it's not the matter of what you have. He's not indifferent to what you've done or what you have in your hands. But his example, God's example is to care about everybody. Now, when you look around at people in this life, what do you see? Not necessarily just in here, but when you, when you look out the community, when you look around, what do you see? Do you see things like the color of their skin? Do you notice the smell of their unwashed clothes? Do you make a list of all of their well-known sins? Or do you dare to follow the example of Christ who loved people no matter what? Now, I'll admit, that's not always easy for me. Now, I know all this stuff. I teach all this stuff. I, I understand what the what the rules are supposed to be, but there are times in my life where I'm, I, I'm, un, I'm uncomfortable. I, I have things that have been culturally implanted into my life experience that sometimes make it hard for me to be able to just jump over those barriers. Uh, I look around here. We, we all don't have the same salaries. We don't have the same backgrounds. Some of us do well. Some of us may be drawn on government assistance, I don't know. There's not a whole lot of diversity in here, and part of that probably has to do with the community may not be very diverse. But, I mean, we're, we're an awful lot alike. If we did a pictorial directory, would there be any pages that had people that looked like this that were, that were in it? James says in verse 5, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Or in his Sermon on the Mount, 
He said, this is recorded in Luke 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me, let me let you play with something in your mind. Could it be that when you get to heaven and you look around, there are more people who don't look like you than look like you? Wouldn't that be weird? To say, what? I thought the people that were going to be here were going to be like me, and lo and behold, there are poor people, there are green people, there are black people, there are white people, there are smart people, there are not so smart people. The population of heaven might look less like what we experience in the population of the church that we know because the example of God and of Christ is that he loves outcasts. He loves the unpopular. James, after pointing all this out, says in verse 6, they should get the message, but he says, you have insulted the poor. And then, almost as an aside, in verses 6, the last part of verse 6 and 7, he says, really, this is kind of ridiculous that you act this way. He says, is it not the rich the guy that you just welcomed in and said, hey, let's have the front seat. Is, not, is it not the rich who are actually exploiting you? They're the ones who are dragging you into court. They are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong. They are the very ones that are making life miserable for you. And now they've come, this guy's come into your assembly and you just bend over backwards to be able to flatter him and to give him some place. He said, you're not even consistent with your life experience. But back to the poor. I'm reminded of another story of Jesus that he told about judgment. It's over in Matthew 25, and, and he, he gives this parable and about how you know, they haven't taken care of the poor and the hungry and the imprisoned and whatever. And at the end of that whole thing, the people say, these are the good people. The, the, this is us that say this. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison. When did we see you as this very unpopular, desperate person in life? When did we see you and not help you? It, we would have made room. We would have cleared out the seats. We would have given you a place here if we had only known that it was you. And that's exactly the point that Jesus was trying to say. Inasmuch as you didn't do it to these, you did not do it to me. This was me. This was... This was me checking you out to see how much you understand how I, I love people. I think the church is filled a lot of times with the haves, but has little presence of the, the have-nots, the popular rather than those that are marked by being on the sidelines. So what do we do? Do we ignore the example of God in all of this? Well, that's the warning that he says. But he, he goes on and he says, it's not just that. Actually, if we, if we play favorites, we also break the law of God. In verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and then he tells us where it is, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, there were people in Jesus' day that were meticulous keepers of the law. In fact, they, they kept laws that they made up. I mean, they had, they had lists of laws. They had the top 10, the top 200, the whatever, and then they had all kinds of 
commentaries that they wrote on the laws just to make sure that they could understand. They had instruction manuals on how to keep the laws. They were very good, a lot of them, like Pharisees. They, they, were, they were law keepers. So they must have been surprised when Jesus one day said to them, this is over in Matthew 23, 23, he says, you Pharisees and teachers are show-offs, and you're in for trouble. You give God a tenth of the spices from your garden, and you proudly think that you're pushing the rule just doing that. Yet you neglect the more important matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the important things that you should have done. A little bit earlier, recorded over in the verses 5 and 6, he talks about these people. He says, everything they do is just to show off in front of others. They even make a big show of wearing scripture verses on their foreheads and their arms. They wear big tassels for everyone to see. They love the best seats at the banquets and the front seats in the meeting area. Then in verse 11, whoever is the greatest should be the servant of others. If you put yourself above others, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself, you will be honored. There's more of that great reversal stuff. It like upends the way we see how people should kind of relate to each other in, in a worldly sort of way. These leaders love to be popular. They were, they were focused on themselves and little else, and it left Jesus sad and angry. And I have to ask myself, if Jesus looks at us today, what does he see? Does he, does he smile, or does he get sad and and angry, or does he bury his head and say, you, you still got it backwards. You, you still have it this way, and you need to look at it this way. You've got you've to flip the worldly way of looking at that. Jesus had, a, had a, a guy who was a lawyer who came to him one day who evidently was well off, and he said to Jesus with, I think, probably good intent, what do I have to do to be able to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, like he a lot of times does shot back a question to him. He says, well, what, is, what does the scripture say? And the man says, well, you're supposed to love the Lord your heart with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's good. You got it right. Do that, and you'll be fine. And the conversation's over, right? No. So the man thinks to himself, and he's trying to figure out, well, I want to I cover all my bases. I want to make sure that I got this thing right. And so he says, uh, and who is my neighbor? We're, we're good at loving God, and we're real good about loving us, ourselves, but we like to decide who deserves our love as our neighbor, who is convenient. We want, in the legal contract, an exception clause right here. We want to be able to say, okay, I know I'm supposed to love everybody, but that cannot mean you. No, I'm sorry. I'm not sure you're very, very lovable. But, but we do that, don't we? We, we kind of pick out who we're going to love, who we're going to exclude, who's going to be our neighbor. You know who deserves God's love and your love, and we just exemplify it out in the world. So how far does this neighbor definition thing go for us to still be on good terms with God? What is the lowest, this is what this guy, this rich guy was saying, what is the lowest common denominator that I can come up with that'll tell me who my neighbor is that I can get by and have eternal life, that I can make the kingdom cut? There's a book that was written several years ago called The Irresistible Revolution. It's by a guy named Shane Claiborne. He's a 
I, I, I got the book the first time and I started reading it and it was one of those books that I just couldn't put down and I read the whole thing before, before I put it back on the shelf. And I, it was a really uncomfortable read. Now part of it was I didn't agree with everything that he had to say. There's some things and positions that he take, take, takes that, that I'm, not, I'm not with him on. But it wasn't the part that I, that I questioned, it was the part that I understood and realized I was not doing. You ever been there? I mean, it's like, okay, I don't like that, but I understand that, but it makes me really, really, really uncomfortable, the things we can't argue with. Now, Claiborne has this prophetic voice where he shocks and he troubles and basically he shoves us out of our comfort zones. For several years, he practiced uh, what he described as experimenting with the gospel in the streets of Philadelphia, in very, very non-traditional ways. He did that after he went to Calcutta to spend some time with Mother Teresa. Somehow he got Mother Teresa's phone number. He doesn't say how, but he dials Mother Teresa. Now, I'm surprised Mother Teresa had a phone, but I mean, he, <coughs> he dials her and she, she answers on the other end, yes, this is Mother Teresa or whatever, however the conversation went. And he said, I would like to come and, I, I would like to, to, uh, to be able to learn from you and she said simply what she said to a lot of people, well, come and see, and he did. He, he came, he saw, he learned, and he was heartbroken by those poverty-stricken people that Mother Teresa and her company of, of uh, nuns served. He described his awakening in this way. He said, I had come to see that the great tragedy in the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich, rich Christians do not know the poor. So he came back to Philadelphia and he moved in with the poor. He made life in the community of brokenness that was there. It is very hard to love broken people from a distance. Now I realize that today, six feet, but for most of us, we spend our lives neighborhoods separated from people that aren't like us, don't we? I mean, I don't like you, so I'm not going to be around you. I'm afraid of you, so I'm not going to subject myself to that anxiety. The reason we don't ever have a potential relationship a lot of times with people that we really don't like or don't understand is because we, we really have never spent any time with them. They live in separate worlds. We would never see some people here in this place. I've come to appreciate several powerful ministries that we have in Cincinnati. One of them is City Gospel Mission. The other is Block Ministry. I've, I've gotten over the time. We, we partnered with both of these ministries at CCU. Our students, a lot of them work there. And it, the lives of the leaders who work and serve and are actually interrupting and turning upside down a lot of the stuff with poverty and brokenness that's in the community are, are, are amazing. But as much as anything that's been powerful has been to spend some time, I mean, to, to visit places, to go. I, I love to go and have a devotion at City Gospel or to spend some time in that area because it takes me out of my comfort zone. It introduces me to people that I'm not like and forces me to consider a relationship with them. Perhaps it's vital for us to go to those that are not like us first before we would ever think that they would come to us Gandhi one time said, ask the poor and they will tell you who the Christians are. 
Ask the broken people who are not here, who are the Christians, and they will tell you. Next week we're going to talk about James 1, and there's this passage that's there. Just let me tease you with it. He says, real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from this godless world. The greatest command that we're talking about breaking here is the royal rule of love God and love your neighbor. In verses 9 and 11 of chapter 2, James goes on to say, If you show favoritism, you sin, are, in convic are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he goes on and he talks about, it's kind of interesting, he talks about murder and adultery. You know, there's some crimes that are big ticket items. They're like top shelf. They're things like, man, you do that, and that's, you know, that's going to get you to the bad place really quick. But he couples those with this sense of passing judgment of being somebody who plays favorites. You mean that favoritism is top drawer too? That if I, if I act and behave like that, 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 I'm, that I'm playing with judgment myself? That if I ignore people that just don't seem to be popular? If I ignore God's example and if I break God's law, those are two good reasons for me to rethink how how I'm, how I'm behaving, which leads to the last thing that I would tell you is that if we, if we just keep on acting like this, it invites God's judgment. 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So basically what James is saying is, how do you want to be judged? Do you want to be judged by how good you are? Or do you want to be judged by how good God is? Do you want for your life and all your brokenness and all your sins to be rolled up there and judged in the final day? Or would you like to have mercy? You choose the scale. Justice or mercy. Now throughout this whole teaching of this section through here, he's been talking about judgment, our personal judgment towards others at the way we the way we play favorites with some people and not with others, that's a judgment call that we make. But now he's talking about God's judgment on us. And he's saying that if we practice that type of judgment, that's the kind of judgment we will receive. Partiality is about judging. And it's almost always driven by an overinflated estimation of who we are. When you're at school, when you're growing up, or when you're at work, the people that you don't like are sometimes the people that are threatening to you, or that you think you could do the job better, or you think you're prettier than, or richer than, or whatever the case may be. We can play that game, he says, but you have to decide in the end whether it's going to be our judgment or God's judgment. Do you want our flawed way of sorting these things out, or would you like to understand how God sorts it out? Would you like his generous measure of grace, or would you like to have your petty sense of judgment? Maybe God has chosen the poor to teach us a lesson. Like he says in verse 2 and 5, we have a desperate need to see God. We need to understand that. Paul in Ephesians 1 said, God chose us before the creation of the world, that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. There's an old English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said, it's perfectly obvious that God chose me. He said, because, because I would never have chosen him. 
And he says, it's equally so because he must have chosen me before I was born, before I was created, because I'm sure he never would have chosen me afterwards. It's when you get to know people that you really dislike them, right? So he says, you know, he had to do it before I was even around because once people get to know me, the Apostle Paul was so impressed with himself early in his life. He was so full of his righteousness, but when he saw Jesus and was blinded and finally realized how all of his heritage of rule-keeping and pious life was next to nothing, he put it this way in Philippians 3, 8-9. He says, everything I once thought, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. It's a nice way of putting it. It's a pretty harsh word that's used there, actually, in the text. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. Or 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, we mentioned this last week. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who can never have made it apart from mercy. People who will receive mercy are those that receive and understand that God has given it to him. That realization transforms, turns ourselves upside down. Somebody says the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Do we act like it? Do we see people with the eyes of Christ? I'm not popular because I'm good. I'm popular because he's good. I don't get into heaven because of my greatness. I get there because of his greatness. Or as James puts it, mercy triumphs over justice. The question is, do we do we act like it? So again, there's the three words that I want you to remember here at the end. Don't play favorites. If you do, it ignores everything that God has been trying to show us through his example. It breaks his law, not the old petty laws, but the primary law of loving him and loving our neighbor. In the end, if we do it, it's going to invite judgment in our lives. Let me tell you one last story and we're done. Calvin Miller, great preacher and writer, was standing up ready to preach in his church one day. And before he could say anything at all, this guy walked in the back door that was anything but uh, a person that fit in. He was, uh, he was poor. Uh, he was very different. He was shabbily dressed. And he came in the room, and it was a very full room, and there was no good place for him, no convenient place for him to sit down. And he literally walked down the aisle to the front of the church, and he sat down on the floor. And everybody in the place was wondering, so what's going to happen next? One of the older guys in the church who had walked feebly with a cane got himself up to his feet and he made his way with much effort down to the front of the place where the guy had sat himself down in all of his lack of glory on the floor. And most people thought, okay, he's, he's going he's gonna to let him have it. He's going to tell him that this is not his place. And Miller says he still just stood there, kind of not saying anything at all. And the guy put his cane down to the side, and feeble as he was, he finally set himself down on the floor next to that guy. And the service continued. Miller said, you probably won't remember a thing that I say today, but you will never forget the sermon that you just saw. 
St. Francis of Assisi one time is reported to have said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, you use words. Everything that I've said today has to do with how the world understands our faith and our understanding of grace and love. And I would just leave you with this question, what kind of gospel are you preaching? If, if we play favorites, we not only, sell, not only put ourselves in peril, but we, we really risk losing our mission to the world. Let's pray. God, uh, I, I love the way your brother here uh, has written to us and said things that have so much to say about this moment just as much as they did back in, in that time. We haven't changed an awful lot, and you know that, unfortunately. And I pray that you will work in our lives and our hearts, maybe because of just something that we've heard here this morning, and that you will change us, that you'll help us to understand that you want us to be different. God, help us to see the world through your eyes, to love them with your love, and to celebrate your mercy. Through Christ we pray. Amen.